0: is the 200 level episode 80 my carpenter from the basement for our first in five consecutive mondays of talking about the last dance from the night before episodes one and two aired on ESPN and ESPN2 last evening and for all the expectations that were heaped upon it and all the anticipation it hit I mean it really worked and it was an engrossing watch it was something where when I was on my couch it was only during ad breaks where I'd even consider looking at my phone. It was not passive entertainment. It was something that very much grabbed you and brought you into that world. And for me, back in 1997, 98, I would have been 10, 11 years old, you know, third grade, something like that, right when sports were becoming a huge deal. They were a big deal for most of my life, but at that age, you can start to realize the importance of things. Context becomes a little bit more clear. And I even knew then from conversations that we'd have at the dinner table, that this was probably it. You know, this was the end of the road and that we should enjoy this team for what they were. And last night's documentary, the first two parts of it, at least, did a really fine job, I thought, of framing the beginning of Jordan's story, of talking about how bad the Bulls were before he even got there, and then always relating it back to that final season, which I did not realize the amount of acrimony and tension that was going on at the Birdo Center, between the front office and Phil Jackson, between Jerry Krause and Scottie Pippen, and really the rest of the team for that matter. I knew a little bits and pieces of it, but that's where the youth that I had back then probably kept me from realizing the extent of it. So this documentary is equal parts nostalgia and revelatory. I am nostalgic for The highlights that I see for the overall vibe that that team had, but it is those personal stories that are revelatory and I'm excited to see what the next eight parts bring. So we will be talking about that with Harry and Trevor in just a bit before we get into a couple of other bits of news. I want to remind you that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe. Order online at DPDoe.com. They deliver anywhere in Champaign Urbana. So, hey, if you don't want to leave the house, you want to shelter in place. DPDoe.com for custom zones where you can put any topping that you want to in this thing or some of their favorites like the Maui Wowie, the buffer zone. Again, online at DPDoe.com. Also, Fourth and Kirby, online at FourthandKirby.com for all your vintage inspired Illini apparel. And you can use coupon code 200 level or the 200 level for 10% off your order at 4 We finally have some warmer spring-like weather. No better time to load up on some t-shirts. I got a couple of them from 4th and Kirby. Probably need to order a few more. Excellent stuff, Uh, really cool designs, and high-quality T-shirts as well from 4 Also, State Farm agent Brian Hanson online at BrianIsMyGuy.com, Trevor Valise's favorite domain name, and for good reason, and for all your insurance needs. So we're talking life, auto, home, business, renters, whatever it may be. Brian and his staff are not only insurance experts, but they have your local interest at heart. They're all Champagne Urbana products. So go online to BrianIsMyGuy.com. Also got to thank Illini Inquirer, online at IlliniInquirer.com, and the Champagne Showers podcast network. You can follow them on Twitter at 217 Showers. Okay, so before we get into the Bulls and the Last Dance documentary, which we'll be doing these next few Mondays, or I guess that's the next five, all the way through mid-May, there was some really good Illini news that came out last week, and that was Luke Good, 2021 shooting guard out of Indiana. Now, the easy thing to look at with Luke Good is, wait a second, this guy looks familiar. He looks like a Tom Coverdale, Dane Fife. He looks like a prototypical Indiana shooting guard. That would either play at Indiana, maybe Iowa, maybe Wisconsin. Somehow we got him. And I know that that is very superficial to say, oh, we got the white shooting guard that usually bothers us. But knowing all the jokes that Lon and I used to make back in 93.5 about how what we would give for that pesky white guy to be on this Illinois team, well, you got him. And not only that, you got a really highly skilled player that might be an immediate impact type as well. This is a wide net that Brad Underwood is casting, and it is impressive, the scope of their recruiting efforts, the amount of talent that he's able to identify early. Luke Good will be able to be slotted in right away. And when you think about losing Trent Frazier, who I think should have a pretty strong senior year, Luke Good is a great addition because you won't be losing a step in terms of shooting. That is another thing, too, is when you look at the additions being made through recruiting, shooting and length, those seem to be the two things that they're really hitting on, which in today's game is essential. And you looked at last year's team and how good they were. They were limited because of that shooting ability or lack thereof. Well, now you're starting to line up a bunch of shooters depth at those positions where you had kind of been lacking. So kudos to Underwood for getting a guy early, getting him to commit this far out. You know, 2021, he won't be here next year. We're going to have to wait another year. We'll see his senior year, whatever there is of that, given this COVID-19 situation. But I I love their ability to say, "Okay, we want this guy. We're going hard after him. And not necessarily falling into the trap that maybe a John Gross did, where they would just go for the top guys in the state and hope, fingers crossed, that maybe they would land one of them, and then ultimately have to settle for, no offense to John Lucas, but a guy like John Lucas. Another way to think of that is instead of waiting until close to signing day to say, okay, well, I guess we got to go with option three, they're whittling things down that far in advance, so, a Luke Good, someone that you can identify, that you can evaluate and bring him in this early on, keeps you from having to deal with those near signing day nerves where maybe we're going to get our guy, maybe we aren't. And if we don't, who's our backup? You don't need to worry about those things now. So, kudos to Underwood, uh, to Gentry, to Antigua, Chin Coleman. You know, I mentioned this on the last podcast talking about Io and how he's going to be gone and that's just going to hurt next year's roster, plain and simple. We wait with bated breath on the Adam Miller thing, but when I look at last year's roster compared to next year's roster compared to next year's, you are beginning to see classes stacked on top of one another where you have class balance, you have positional balance where you are not lacking at any place one through five, and that is just roster management that we did not see in the decade before. It is reason for optimism. It is reason to think that this thing is sustainable like Jeremy and I talked about last week. Luke Good is the kind of guy who is a four year college player for all intents and purposes, who has a skill set that is going to translate immediately because he can shoot, because he's got length, sneaky athleticism, and maybe you're beginning to see an identity formed through these recruits. What I'm noticing, shooters. That's one. Two is length. And then when you think about Underwood when he came in here and all the you know hype about this offensive system that he runs and how high scoring they're going to be, ultimately, whatever you saw last year, I think that was the aberration. With an offense that was much more downhill, uh, they kind of had to get to the basket for layups because they couldn't shoot. And yet they still found their way to 21 wins, an impressive season by any measure. But that isn't necessarily the identity that Underwood would want to run the entire time here, and I get that. Kudos to him. He adapted with last year's roster when he figured out, well, they probably aren't the best shooting team in the world, but their strength was getting to the rim, and Kofi certainly helped with that. But as they go forward, and you're starting to see the sort of athletes that they bring in, and the old trope of positionless basketball, right? That Coleman Hawkins, for example, with his length and his size and athleticism, he still isn't your prototypical center or power forward. He has some versatility there, along with a lot of other guys that they're bringing in. So, You're beginning to see an identity take shape where we might look back on year three of Underwood as, hey, he adapted, he changed his entire identity for that group of talent, and that as we go forward and he continues to stack these classes, you're going to see the program that he wants to build. Now, I would hope that somehow we can find this roster coming up. They can find their way in the tournament, and Adam Miller is the key with that, along with Kofi. Where if you tell me right now Kofi and Adam Miller are on next year's team, they're making the tournament. I have no doubts about that. And the further that you go along and can sort of stack these tournament appearances, I feel better and better about sustaining something. It was a conversation that I had with Kara as we were walking Rosie around campus last week, talking about just sports in general, going to sporting events, and when would that happen again? Uh, what would that look like? And somehow got in the conversation of how you know I'm feel lucky and fortunate that the last sporting event that I attended for the foreseeable future was the Illinois Iowa game that my dad and I went to. And how Illinois basketball season tickets, well, would that be something we would consider? And, you know, maybe, maybe not. Maybe we'll go in on a sort of group thing with my sister and my parents and figure out how to dole those tickets out. But when I was thinking about that, is, you know, if I knew that this thing is sustainable and that Brad Underwood could get this going for the next decade, right? A Lou Henson esque sort of decade, I would probably jump at that opportunity. But until I see that sort of consistency, it's. Going to be more, hey, mom and dad, can I go to that game? Or maybe I'll go to StubHub and get a pair of tickets for this game. I think I'm still waiting, still a little bit gun shy to get back on board 100% and say, well, they've figured this thing out and we're good for the foreseeable future. There's no guarantees. And that goes for any program. But once you get to three consecutive tournament appearances in a row, once you have that recruiting momentum going, which it kind of looks like they already have, and then you look at the conference and think, well, there's already been a lot of attrition this offseason, I'm beginning to think more and more that this thing can work. I just sort of want it to work without the speed bump of missing the tournament this year because Kofi I, O, Andres Feliz, and Alan Griffin are all gone. <laughs> I would love to think that, well, you know, they'll find their way to the tournament even if it is a 9 or 10 seed and even if they aren't the best team out there. But the exciting thing going forward, I think, is the amount of offensive talent coming in and and hoping that that athleticism that you see on the YouTube highlight tapes that that translates on the defensive side as well. But it was a good bit of news getting Luke Ford, and not to hit too hard on the white sharpshooter from Indiana thing, but it is a very rare recruit. I remember distinctly when Illinois got Jalen coleman lands their first kid out of Indiana in I don't even know how long, and how excited we were on T&J, would have been the show back then, I think Jalen coleman Lands is now entering his sixth season because he had an injury and then he had a transfer redshirt. So he's going to have one more year up at DePaul. Obviously, his career didn't go exactly as planned because he was a really highly touted recruit that even though we didn't get the Jalen Brunsons or the Cliff Alexanders of the world back then, getting him was a big deal for John Gross. And it felt like, well, this thing could work. You know, It didn't, <laughs> as we all know. But that was still a very rare recruitment to get in on an Indiana kid like that and land him. Well, this is sort of exercising the demons of the past, like a Tom Coverdale, as I mentioned before, the Dane Fife's of the world, even though I think Luke Good is probably going to be better than a Dane Fife. I would love for him to have a Tom Coverdale kind of career, but more than those guys, because if I recall, I think Tom Coverdale and Dane Five were still undersized guards. And they have that very annoying, scrappy Indiana sort of mentality. But let's not overlook the fact that Luke Good is an athletic stud. You know, I I don't think that should go without saying. That we fall into that trap, myself included, of well, he's just another one of those scrappy white guys, which is kind of racist in and of itself. Even though I am a white guy talking about another white basketball player, but look at the Iowas of the world and what they're doing with this offensive talent, now it is hurting them defensively. And that might be where you see a little bit of athletic deficiency in a kid like, well, McCaffrey's kid, for example. But when you look at C.J. Frederick and know that you got to face him for three more years, I need that. I want the sharpshooter that the other team freaks out about. I remember distinctly on March 8th when Iowa came to town, every time that Illinois had a certain lead, I didn't feel entirely comfortable because I knew Iowa could shoot themselves back into that game. Hopefully now that's what you're doing. So whether it be Luke Good coming in next year, whether it be the two transfers, Grandison and Hutcherson, this year that both have pretty good three-point shooting percentages, Trent Frazier hopefully having a rebound year because he does not need to run point all that much or at least as much as he used to, and fingers crossed, Adam Miller, you got guys that can shoot now. And if that team last year would have had it, the team that we just saw would have had that three-point shooting ability, how dangerous would they have been? They Well, they would have won the Big Ten for one. They would have gotten one more win that they needed in the Big Ten to at least share that title. You saw that deficiency hurt them, and they were able to overcome that with a special player like Io and Andres Feliz, who was really a great complement to the style of play that Io had. Both of those guys, very downhill, get to the basket, good things are going to happen. Yeah, the identity changes, but that doesn't mean the amount of success has to. You will miss the playmaking ability of Io and Andres Feliz, and you will miss the spark plug of an Alan Griffin, who it just chills me still that this guy isn't going to be on your team when I think of, wait a second, you would fit totally in with what's going on here, Alan. But hey, good luck to him. The key, of course, is Kofi coming back. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know when the NBA draft is going to be. We don't know if the deadlines for taking your name out of the NBA draft are going to change. It might be August, September by the time any of this is figured out. And that is not a great position for Brad Underwood and his staff to be in. But you know what? There's other staffs that are dealing with uncertainty as well. That's just the new reality that they all have to deal with. But if you tell me right now that Kofi's on this team next year, I feel great. And maybe not Big Ten title great, but certainly make the NCAA tournament, top half of the Big Ten, dangerous team that's going to win some games against really good opponents. And that could even be Arizona in the non-conference game. You know, all this said, hopefully these things happen. You know, I get so excited. Maybe watching The Last Dance temporarily made me forget about the reality of COVID-19 and how... We don't know the next time any of us will step foot in a stadium arena again. And I hope that these games come back sooner rather than later, of course, under the condition that it's safe. But I think that's what it was through this opening segment. I was talking like, well, we don't need to worry about that. And maybe that is the best way to operate is, well, these will come back. These games will be played. There will be an Illini basketball season, however that looks. And just proceed forward with that. Speculate on the games that will be played, whether it's in February or November. Right. College football. That's a whole other deal. I know Josh Whitman's making the rounds today and you'll be able to listen to, I think, the podcast on Jeremy Warner's show. If you didn't catch it live, he was on Chicago sports radio talking about how sure the idea of not playing in front of fans is weird talking about college football this year, but that everything's on the table and it kind of needs to be. I don't know if they're going to get any games this fall. I think the spring schedule probably appears more and more likely, even though that would be one busy year for college football, and you're really shortening the length of time between seasons, and that has a lot of unintended consequences, I'm sure. But that's a whole conversation that will get brewing here as you get all the professional leagues Major League Baseball trying to figure out how to do a shortened season and in what location. The NBA trying to figure out do we resume it or just say, okay, we're moving on to the next one. Mark Cuban was on 670, the score last week, and a little bit of optimism, but also no timeline, no timetable whatsoever because you just can't operate with one. So, as we sit here with that uncertainty, that brings me back to what we were able to watch last night on ESPN, The Last Dance Documentary, parts one and two. And if they had been playing three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten throughout the late evening and early morning hours, I probably would have stayed up for the whole thing. And that's how engaged I was. But what I'm excited to do is talk with Harry Black and Trevor Valise, because they didn't live through it. To them, Michael Jordan is sort of this ghostly apparition, a myth. They know about him, they've seen highlights, but they didn't live through it. So I'm excited to get their take on all of this because while I can remember the bits and pieces and remember the excitement around that team at that young age, these guys were only able to do so through grainy YouTube clips. And from hearsay, old basketball players saying, well, these guys nowadays, they just don't have what it takes. They aren't as tough as they were back in the day, which may or may not be true. But one thing did dawn on me, and we can have a discussion about best basketball player ever. I think that is a somewhat silly discussion, similar to the best band of all time. I would tell you that Led Zeppelin, in my mind, is the best hard rock band of all time. But other arguments can be made, and I'd be happy to listen to them. When we talk about best of all time, you need to understand that the game has changed. And maybe you don't like this game of basketball as much as you did back in the 90s, but when you watch LeBron James, he would have been absolutely dominant back then. He's an athletic freak. The game has evolved. I know this, though. Michael Jordan was the best competitor of all time. He's one of the best basketball players of all time, if not the best, but he is certifiably without question, the best competitor that ever lived. And that is enough for me. We can have the debate between LeBron, Jordan in their primes, one-on-one who would win. That's kind of fun, easy conversations to have, but ultimately I don't know how much that matters. Jordan was a killer and that 6-0 record in the NBA Finals, that won't be matched. I I can't envision that ever being matched. His legacy is secure, and it does seem like this documentary, with his blessing, is an attempt to frame that legacy. And there are some unsavory parts that we'll talk about. There's the trash talk, especially towards Jerry Krause. They're going to get more and more into this documentary. I think about Scott Burrell, who was a teammate on that 97-98 team, and some of the frankly, awful things that Jordan would say to him and other teammates. He'd get into fights at practice. Gave a black eye to Will Purdue. Gave a black eye to Steve Kerr. And each of those guys talk about it like, well, that was just Michael being Michael. I'm thinking, interesting. That's an, an interesting way to look at it, some guy punching you in the face. But, you know, I guess we <laughs> have to go back to that idea. Well, that was then. This is now. The game has changed. Attitudes have changed. I don't know if Jordan and that attitude would play in today's NBA But then on the other hand, I think that guy was such a competitor that he would have adapted and found a way to still be the best player in today's league. But I could go on and on about this. I'm excited to bring on old friends Trevor Valise and Harry Black and get their take on The Last Dance. All right, so we got Harry Black and Trevor Valise on the line. And I wanted to start with this, guys, because it's easy for me to watch this. And I said, for me, it's equal parts nostalgia and revelatory. And I would say if there were a pie chart of last night, the things I already knew and the things I didn't know— Probably 70% I'd either read or heard about, but the other 30% were those much more personal stories about the tension and all that existed. For you guys, though, having grown up post-Jordan, what was the biggest takeaway? And that could be a single anecdote or that could be overall, uh, and Harry, to start with you, the overall uh, vibe, I guess, that you got from it
1: biggest thing that I was surprised with and this might just be with me not having grown up it's probably a little different from you guys having grown up as Chicago Bulls fans you specifically carpet and you Trev I know you're younger but still having grown up as a Bulls fan knowing of the mystique of Michael Jordan for me I saw him like everyone else more of a um, you know more of like a mythical creature for me he almost was like Babe Ruth I never got to see him play with the Bulls I was four when he retired. So for me, it was really the Kobe and Shaq era. That's who I grew up seeing play and dominating the NBA. So for me, what really surprised me the most was I had no idea that this 97, 98 team struggled so mightily and had this much turmoil. For me, I always saw it as two clean uh, two clean three-peats. They won the first three early on, and they won the second three. I just figured... Well Jordan was probably getting old towards the end of his uh, of his career and he decided, well I've already I've already retired once, let me uh let me try to go out on top if I do, that's great if I don't then you know, I'm going to retire anyway. I didn't know that it was that uh, he had that much left in the tank and you see like in that game against the Clippers, he was still just as dominant as he had been throughout his entire career. He probably could have played for another couple of years because you see well, it was probably like three or four years later when he joined the uh, joined the Wizards. He wasn't the same player. But you could probably see, and I don't want to put everything on, uh, on, on Jerry Krause, but it really does seem like from the documentary that he kind of broke apart that team that had won three in a row. And if maybe they had maybe just gotten along a little bit better and been able to play nice – I mean, who knows if you don't win a fourth straight, especially in a shortened season like the strike uh, season was the next season.
0: That year. might have helped them, if anything, though, because their age. I think about Jordan, and you mentioned he was still pretty much at the top of his game, though cracks were beginning to appear. I think about yeah. how LeBron, every now and then, will have a season where maybe his points per game dips by a couple and his field goal percentage drops by five and people think, well, "Uh-oh, you know, the cracks are beginning to show." And then just like that he comes back the next year better than ever. I think Jordan could have had a similar situation had he stuck it out, but um you mentioned the struggles, Harry, and then Trevor, I want to get you on this no spoiler alert. The Bulls still finished 62 and 20. So Yeah. <laughs> well, that means after the 4 and 4 start, which I forgot they struggled out of the gate and lost their first four road games, that means after that they were 58 and 16. <laughs> which is pretty ludicrous. For And then pretty I looked good. at their roster. They were old. That was an old team. And I, I remember that being a narrative that year. But I looked at the, the median age, I think, was 32 or 33 on that team. So, Trevor, you're watching it. And um, judging by the text, you were pretty engrossed in the two hours of, of documentary we saw last night. So, similar to Harry, the same question. What kind of stuck out to you the most?
2: Well, not to sound like a copycat, but my biggest takeaway was just... You know, they're talking about going for the sixth ring, and then you're switching to Jerry, and he's Jerry Krause at Reinstorf, But they're talking about rebuild. And it's like, what? (laughs) Like, why would – the word rebuild should not even be in the vocabulary of a team that's going for their sixth champion. I Just the amount of drama and tension and angst surrounding that team, I, I honestly did not know it existed until I watched this because, again, I was two. When, when this was happening, I was one and then two years old when this was happening. So it's not like I had any awareness of what was going on when it was going on, but just to, to realize that there was that there were players holding out, you know, then Scotty Pippen says he purposefully, you know, waited and wanted to have a nice summer before he elected to have a surgery. <laughs> and just, just like all this stuff. I mean, it almost turned into like full blown, not sitcom, but I mean, there was just so much going on and so many personalities that it almost seemed like a reality TV show. And I truly had no idea that any of that was going on. And I think the documentary, on another note, was just masterfully built. At first, I, I, I kind of wondered why they were switching back and forth between like Michael's youth and then the 97, 98 season, but I thought they did it really well. Uh, I thought the storytelling was great and I was just fully enthralled in it from, from start to finish.
0: Yeah, we'll get to the structure in a bit, but you mentioned Scotty talk, not getting that surgery. He elected to wait until the season started, and in his just very chill Arkansas drawl, my favorite line of many great lines of the night was, "You know, I wasn't gonna—I can't say the word—but I wasn't gonna mess up my summer." And one of I think uh, seven or eight f words that got dropped in that thing. And I know that Jordan was—he was honest about it. He said, "You know, it was selfish." He—he—he—he he, he, he supported Scotty, but at the same time, he's out there struggling through the first month of the season and carrying that team as he did in the Clippers game but uh the Jerry Krause dynamic seems to be the biggest thing in the first two episodes so let's just launch right into that first with his relationship with Phil Jackson and Harry imagine a situation in which Jerry Krause says all right you're back Phil but it doesn't matter if you're going 82 and 0 this is your <laughs> this is your last that? year i i mean in in the history of sports egos getting in the way of a good thing that strikes me the most. And we don't know the conversations those two may have had behind closed doors, but Phil Jackson, uh, doesn't strike me as someone that would maybe verbally berate somebody. So I'm wondering where that all began in the first place and how you could tell a guy that had won five championships. I don't care what you do. You're gone.
1: I mean, it, it kind of, it, it really shows that it, at the end of the day, it had nothing to do with what was going on with, um, with what he was doing on the court. And, and the thing that I kind of thought back to was I had been told once that Abbott and Costello did not get along off, uh, off stage. Like, like they had this great, um, this great act together. They're two of the funniest guys back in the day, but off the stage, they just absolutely couldn't stand each other. Um, I similar to like, say maybe carp for you from a musician standpoint, the, the police, they hate each other, right? I think they all For hate each reason, other. Right? They can't. They can't stand one another. And they at the do. End of the,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think so. And oh. at the end of the day, it um, you know, we can sit here and say that's ridiculous. You have this amazing thing going on the court. You have one of the best teams of all time. One of the most dominant decades of any sport. The 1990s Bulls, but we can't really put ourselves in those shoes and say. Just put it to just put it to the side and try to you know keep on going forward because when you can't stand someone that much it really doesn't matter what they do on the court because you're looking at it saying hey and from uh, Krause's point of view he had the power to be able to say you're gone after this year I don't care what you do and you know for him to say that it must have just gotten to a point where a little bit of it probably is ego getting in the way him thinking hey i can do this without you and maybe that shouldn't be the reason but it also probably was a little bit i just can't stand being around you anymore and i know probably the same goes for you for me so while he said that to uh to phil jackson if you go 82 and oh it doesn't matter you're out of here it probably was a little bit mutual it wasn't like you could see that as soon as jackson got that information he said okay i'm out of here After this season, it's not like he put up much of a fight. So you can tell they were probably pretty much done with one another after that.
0: Yeah. And with Phil, he had even said, I think in the second part of the documentary, that either Phil or someone that knew Phil said that seven years in his mind was sort of the shelf life at any particular stop. And the same thing happened with the Lakers, where Phil was not there for an eternity. He won his championships and then he said, All right, I've kind of run my course at this spot. But what struck me with the Jerry Krause thing, in addition to the Phil Jackson thing, uh, the relationship with those two, Trevor, is the fact that the players would so openly ridicule their GM. And I think what it shows, one, Jordan could say whatever he wanted to to anybody, and nothing's going to happen to him because he is the team, and he recognized that. Uh, The other part, and I know it's mean-spirited, but damn if it wasn't funny. And this is, I think, me, Trevor— Falling into that trap of idolization, of looking at Michael Jordan saying, well, he's the greatest competitor of all time. And sometimes these guys are just jerks to other people. I mean, it was truly mean what he would do to Krause. But the documentary gave enough context where it's understandable.
2: Oh, God, it was hilarious. First of all, (laughs) his jokes and constantly just calling him like a fat little guy um they said what did they say his nickname was crumbs the players oh. called crumbs because he'd start eating muffins and drip crumbs all over himself <laughs> i want to go back to the very first minute of the documentary where jerry Reinsdorf is sitting there and he goes uh jerry asked me to be the gm first of all that's kind of weird guy out of left field just asks to be the gm mm-hmm. so i asked around the league and everybody said he was poison and don't touch him then they cut to the next shot and he's shaking his hand and saying welcome to the bulls <laughs> like it's like, did you not take in any of the advice you just heard? Obviously not. I, I couldn't tell how remorseful Reinsdorf was in hindsight. It seemed like at not times very. he was trying to. It seemed like at times he was trying to, you know, back up Krauss and then at times he sort of admitted that 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 he had to, you know, like when he sat down separately with Phil and separately with Michael and tried to explain things to them. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't very clear on how uh, remorseful he was for originally hiring jerry but i just had to laugh when it said don't touch him he's poison that's the advice he got from everyone and then the next shot was him shaking hands with him and introducing him
0: yeah <laughs> <laughs> well here's the thing about reinsdorf we just saw this within the last month right and they finally pulled the trigger and they hired a new gm or a new basketball you know director of basketball operations and gm new front office for the bulls finally after all these years but the biggest problem that reinsdorf has had with the bulls and the white Soxes is his undying loyalty to people that maybe don't deserve it. But then I say that and it's like, well, wait a second. You know, Jerry Krause for all his faults. He didn't draft Jordan. That's true. But he did pull the trade to get Scotty Pippen. He did bring in Horace Grant. He made the trade that actually benefited that roster in trading away Charles Oakley, who was well-liked in that locker room for a center which they needed in Bill Cartwright. And I think of the other acquisitions, whether it be B.J. Armstrong, good draft pick, Tony Kukoc, uh, when guys out of Europe were not necessarily hot commodities. He made a lot of good moves and is overall a good GM. So I guess Harry, does his ego and personality get it clearly it got in the way of his ability to do his job longer. But he still won six titles as a GM. So I just find myself torn about his legacy.
1: It is weird because if you look at the job like you said, Carp, what he had to do as a GM is put together a team that can go out there and win. And I mean you look at it, yeah, he didn't take Jordan, but after he brought in the pieces, a lot of people say, Well, Jordan never won anything without Scottie Pippen. Jerry Krauss brought in Scottie Pippen. So he obviously has a lot to do with that dynasty. He said organizations win dynasty or organizations win championships, single players don't win championships, single people don't win championships. And there's truth to that. If you don't have Kraust, you you don't win six championships, I don't think. You might win one or two because yeah, you do have Michael Jordan. He is the best player of all time. Uh, if you don't have Phil Jackson, you don't win six. If you don't have Jordan, you don't win six. You needed all three of them in there, I personally believe, because they each played their role. Jordan was the greatest player of all time. Jackson, probably the greatest coach uh, of all time, definitely was the perfect, um, I don't think foil is the right word, but best compliment to Jordan because he implemented that offense. No one had ever seen the triangle. And then Krauss put them all together. And while it didn't work long term, I don't think you call it, a failure on any uh on any kind of scale even like a failure as far as the relationship between uh between jerry Krause and the rest of the bulls organization because they were able to stand each other for 12 years even if it wasn't maybe all peaches and cream for most of that
2: you know i i I really wish he were alive to be
1: interviewed by this by the way yes that would have been fun do you think he would have actually done and i yeah i think he
0: would have i think so And, you know, back to the thing about ego. Think of all the guys that they got to talk in this. People with egos, they want to hear themselves speak, and they want to get their side of the story out there. So I think Krauss definitely would have. There was an interview that I heard on 670. Dan Bernstein, he's doing a show solo now, and he had Terry Boers on last Thursday or Friday. And Boers and Bernstein each covered the Bulls for significant periods of time during this title run. And Boers had a conversation with Jerry Krauss maybe in the late 2000s, at a white Sox game. And he said it went on for three hours and he didn't take any notes, but he said, Jerry, when you were one-on-one could be one of the most likable guys around. And I think they mentioned this in the first five minutes of the documentary that he suffered from little man syndrome. And you just, you can look at his physicality, right? He's five foot four, maybe stumpy little guy surrounded by these Adonises like Michael Jordan, six foot six, totally fit. And it it just felt like some schoolyard kind of stuff. And it's amazing to me that these guys, even in the midst of all that success, couldn't seem to pull themselves out of things that you would do when you were 12 years old. And maybe that's an athletics issue. I don't think it's specific to athletics, though. I think you could find that in any environment where um, a lot of these people in power positions, part of what drives them is the fact that their entire lives they've been the little guy. They've been inferior. So they have this weird drive to become the leader of something. So I could watch a whole documentary on Jerry Krause. And I do think that the one missing ingredient to this is the unfortunate uh, fact that he's not really on camera except for you know stock footage from back in the day.
2: Well, it was funny too because Jordan, there was a, the little bit where he was talking about how his dad always belittled him and said, you know, made fun of him, said he wasn't as athletic as his brother. And I'm thinking like, there's sort of this weird parallel as to what Jordan's dad did to him. And then what Jordan turned around and started doing to Jerry, not that Jerry was, you know, the same type of situation because obviously he was, you know, not playing basketball at a competitive level ever, but there was sort of this weird, it it was very interesting to see the parallels between, you know, MJ as a child talking about getting berated by all of his brothers and his Mm -hmm. dad a lot. And then you see him sort of, Not necessarily turn into that, but to a certain extent, he becomes that sort of, you know, badass guy who can say anything he wants to anybody. And he just the way he says anything somehow just commands the room to the point where I'm just sitting there in awe of any joke, any own any any even just a death glare at somebody. I'm like, holy crap, just Michael Jordan is just such a polarizing guy.
0: Here's what I said in the opening segment and I want to get your guys' thoughts on this. The argument about best basketball player ever, because the game is constantly evolving, is always going to be tricky. I'll always say Jordan, uh, but I understand the argument for LeBron, even though he has won three titles to Jordan six. But you know, th- those debates will go on forever. But in terms well, LeBron's of LeBron's not done either yet. That's true. And but here's here's where I thought, oh, this is the edge that Jordan will have against anybody. Best competitor. Of all time, and we could maybe say any sport. Yeah, you know, it's one thing to be the best, and certainly LeBron James of his generation is far and away the best player in the in the world. But the question, or the the knock on him, was always, well, does he have that same sort of competitive fire as Jordan? And the answer easily is no. But no one ever has. So to me, that is the one thing that Jordan will have head and shoulders above people. And as I I can't consume enough Jordan stuff right now. I'm reading old articles, a lot of which about you know trash talking. And there was a line that he said to Muggsy Bogues that Muggsy Bogues said ruined his career. Have you heard this story before? Mm -mm. I have not, no. It was a big game. Maybe it was a playoff game in the early 90s against the Charlotte Hornets, which back then the Hornets were pretty good. It was Muggsy Bogues, Larry Johnson, Kendall Gill. Uh, I feel like I'm missing another guy in that team, but they were pretty good. And they made the playoffs year in, year out. And in a crucial possession in the fourth quarter, Jordan yells at Bogues, shoot the effing ball, you midget. Or shoot the effing ball, (laughs) you effing midget. And, And Muggsy said that after that, his shot was never the same. <laughs> and, and you get all, well, but this is the power. And I believe him. Yes, and this is the power of Jordan, though, because you have all these guys, and they tell these stories with this weird fondness, like, "Yeah, I got schooled by the greatest competitor of all time. It was kind of cool." Or, "I got made fun of by Michael Jordan. That was kind of cool." It, it, it is right, Trevor. He has this presence where people would rather be made fun of him than be ignored by him. And I get why that is because he's magnetic. It he comes across on the screen.
1: Yeah. Well, he, he has this um, he has this thing about him when you have that kind of like when you are as big as Michael Jordan and you have that kind of authority on everything. And the thing that that reminds me of that Mugsy Bogues story, what that reminds me of is um, <clears throat> to draw the comparison back to LeBron is there's this game between the Cavaliers and the Wizards back in the day. I think like 2005, 2006, something. It was in the playoffs. It was, um, it was LeBron versus Gilbert Arenas. Back when Arenas was was really good, and he had two free throws essentially to ice the game. I think they were up by three or two. LeBron and they, or it
0: was LeBron had them.
1: Yeah, no, no. Uh, Arenas had the two had the Got two it. free throws. And he, I, it was basically to put the game away. Uh, Gilbert Arenas back then, great. Great player, All Star, one of the better, uh, one of the better free throw shooters. Took the first free throw, missed it. LeBron stepped up to him, and like you could tell, he said something to him, and Arenas is noticeably shook. Obviously, misses the second free throw, and what come uh, the Cavaliers go down the court, end up winning the game. I think end up winning the series because I think that was the deciding game six. And afterwards, what had come out is that LeBron stepped up to him and said. If you miss this shot, you're never going to be able to live it down or, or something like that. Or you're, or, uh, you better make this shot or you'll, you'll never forget it. And when someone of that kind of authority gets into your head, they're big enough to make you think, Oh my God, if they're saying this, it is absolutely true. They, they have, you are defeated before you even take the shot. It's the same thing that happened with, uh, with Muggsy Bogues, what happened with Arenas.
0: Uh, yeah, and the gamesmanship, there was something I saw last week when they replayed the Masters and Tiger Woods win last last year where there were still images of Tiger because there were groups of three instead of just two because they had to get everybody in before the storms came. That's why they teed off at like nine in the morning. And in his group, he was facing two other guys at the top of the leaderboard and Tiger would shoot his shot. And then before even waiting for the other guy to shoot his shot, he would just walk right up to his ball where basically he (laughs) was in the sight line of the two guys that still had yet to shoot. So they would have to look at, oh, wait, there's Tiger in his red top and his black pants on a Masters Sunday. Ah, damn it. Like it just total gamesmanship where one of the guys that was in that group tried to strike up a conversation with Tiger on the 10th hole. He he, Tony for I think was the guy's name. And he said, I figured I'd be nice. Like, Hey Tiger, you know, how, how are the kids doing? And Tiger was like, fine. And they just walked away and and he was kind of shook by that because he thought, oh damn, that's right he's the greatest competitor in golf history. So with Jordan and all these stories, more of which are going to come out, there's a Scott Burrell story that I guess is going to be in this documentary that's totally ruthless. but same thing Scott Burrell talks about it now with this weird kind of fondness. and Jordan at one point in this documentary, in an episode coming up, I think says something along the lines of you know I all this all these things I said to my teammates, I never asked anything of them that I wouldn't effing ask of myself. which first off, I think Jordan masterfully places the F word when for maximum poignancy, when he really wants to make a point, he saves those f words just like the head- quote was great. Oh God, great quote. Yeah yeah. so the early bulls days, I thought episode one got into that. They framed it how bad that franchise was. Indoor soccer team is out drawing the Bulls at Chicago Stadium. They had you know, video footage of Bulls teams from 82 and 83 playing in front of hundreds of people at Chicago Stadium. And to me, the one quote that just exudes the swagger that he had back then, he was asked about his transition to the pros, and he said, yeah, it's been easy. <laughs> and, yeah, that, and,
1: that absolutely blew my mind because, I mean, you talk to absolutely anybody else they always say, yeah, there's a little bit of time getting used to going from college to the NBA or or college to any professional sport. And it's not like they asked him it, and he said, everyone told me it would be hard, but this is actually really easy. He said it. It was complete honesty. It was, so how's your transition been? Oh, it's been easy. You know, I've just been doing basically everything that I I think. Did he say it's been easy or did he say, how is it? Or like, how's it been compared? He said, oh, it's been the same. And I it was something like between those two to show that in his mind he was he was essentially letting everyone know that he can dominate the NBA this early on at the same ease as he was able to do so at UNC.
0: Yeah, I think I'd wrote down it's been easy in quotes. I got I got a whole little iPhone notepad yeah. of stuff from yesterday and that Part of I think yesterday there were a lot of highlights from it, but framing where that franchise was and how indifferent the city was to it, and this kid comes in and immediately makes himself the alpha dog on that team. They get into the story where it's a road game, and Jordan's like, "Well, where is everybody?" You know, he wants to find some of his teammates, maybe hang yeah. out or something. And he knocks on a door, and he can hear someone behind the door say, wait, wait, who is it? Who is it?" And he goes inside, and you know, just a cocaine paradise and you know whores and coke and whatever and and the the term the bulls traveling cocaine circus there's a great story that uh, terry bores had on thursday on 670 where he was covering that team and i forget the name of the individual that had a significant cocaine problem it was well known but he went to rehab he got out of rehab he joins the team on a road trip, and he buys everyone a drink in the hotel lobby. And Terry Bores goes up and says, hey, you know, should, should are you sure you should be doing that? You know, you just got out of rehab, and the guy was like, yeah, the doc says it's okay, you know, just avoid the coke. And that these guys back then, the the 80s NBA in general, had developed this reputation for just total decadence, with cocaine use and they sort of developed a bad reputation. So Jordan comes in and along with bird and magic kind of revitalizes the game in the eighties when it was not just in Chicago, but elsewhere it was getting, you know, the NBA was not all that pop, especially compared to now was not all that popular there in that little stretch in the mid eighties.
1: Well, yeah, I worked with, um, I worked with this kid, the kid, he's older than me, but I worked with this guy. He's a big NBA fan. And he had told me that, that, uh, that Jordan kind of bridged the gap between, uh, the Bill Russell versus uh, Jerry West, uh, dominance that was the NBA back in the sixties. Then you go through the seventies and some of the eighties up until, uh, really started to get better with, with, uh, with, with Magic Johnson and Larry, uh, Larry Bird. And then obviously by the time Jordan was there, it was better. But there was a time there when the NBA was seen as, it's kind of falling apart. the the, uh, the competition isn't as good. There's competition from the ABA. A lot of the players are, are being up, you know, kind of uh, poached away by the ABA. And the players that are in the NBA are are cokeheads. I, it, so the, it certainly had a bad reputation. That was kind of brought even more so to light by the documentary yesterday. And <laughs> I know this this is not fair at all, but I just the only thought I thought when and I texted you guys. When Jordan goes in there, sees everything that's going on, and decides, "No, I'm just going to go back to my room. I'm not going to be drinking, and I'm not going to be uh, snorting coke. I'm not going to be doing any of that stuff." And then it shows him making his bed and cleaning his dishes. I just think, "What a nerd!"
0: Yeah, but what then a nerd, this guy! <laughs> but then that's juxtaposed against the fact that all of his interview segments, he has a lit cigar and a full glass of scotch. So this clearly. And I don't know if they're going to get into this or not, but some of the conspiracy theories, like the flu game in 97, the conspiracy theory with that was that it wasn't the flu, that he was just massively hung over. Now, that's never been verified, but there was a series in 1993 against the Knicks where the night before a loss at Madison Square Garden Jordan had been seen at 4 a.m. at an Atlantic City casino, super drunk, gambling, you know, because they will get into his gambling here. So it is interesting how early on he was kind of the prude. And then he just he has voracious appetites, gambling being a big one. But the guy loves his cigars and the guy loves his I presume loves his booze because he was pretty well known for knocking him back.
2: How many members of the 1984 Bulls had to sit with their wives and families last night and explain <laughs> that they were not part of the cocaine circus?
0: That was the best tweet out of many good tweets last night. That, and I thought the same thing. Where I was like, "Oh my god, there are 12 dudes right now. They're just like, ah, oh, damn it. I mean, they just get called that right away." Uh, <laughs>
1: well, you're you're sitting there, you're watching out with your family, like you said, Trevor. Sweetie, I promise that wasn't me, Jim. There was 12 people on that team. Are you telling me that you weren't one of the 12 that was in that room right then?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I, I love the context with which episode one gave for the early Jordan career. And you mentioned this, Trevor, the structure of it. I think... I was in the same boat maybe 40 minutes into the first episode where I thought, well, okay, we're jumping back and forth. But then they tied in beautifully where at, by the end of episode one, we've covered his childhood, we've covered UNC and the draft, and now we're back to the very beginning of that 97, 98 season where they're in Paris and France. Uh, Scott, Let's go to episode two because Scotty Pippen back in the day, I've always sort of liked the uh, Corey Bradford being an example. Frank Williams is great, but Corey Bradford, he was my favorite guy on that team. I look at the Yankees in the late 90s. Derek Jeter was great. Bernie Williams was my favorite player. So I've always had this affinity for the number two guy, Scottie Pippen being arguably the best number two guy in sports history. And they get into his background. And this is what I love about this documentary, Trevor, is the context with which they give. He accepts a seven-year deal for $18 million total. (laughs) But you got you understand it though because this is someone whose family he's got a dad and a brother essentially paralyzed he has a bunch of siblings they don't have a lot of money he wants to lock in that financial security early and he does uh of course that comes back to bite him a little bit but I I just think things like that yeah they they maybe need 10 hours to tell this story to include that sort of context for Scotty
2: Yeah well I didn't know any of this I mean I didn't know <laughs> talk about Uh, a a glow up if you will a team manager to a top 30 nba player of all time i mean what was he a team manager's first year at central arkansas central arkansas grew five inches i mean my goodness what a what a steep rise all of a sudden for him but suddenly i you know i I knew scotty pippen obviously got the short end of the stick when it came to against michael jordan but suddenly he was painted as this and not incorrectly painted sounds like you know it's, it's not right, but he was, he was shown as this sympathetic figure. Someone tweeted, we need to start a GoFundMe for Scottie <laughs> Pippen. And I'm like, yeah, I'd, I'd throw in 10 bucks Because suddenly it's like, my God. I mean, at a certain point, if you're Jerry Reinsdorf, and I know that it's not in any GM or owner's nature to want to give a player more money if they sign a contract. But I mean, clearly, as he's playing that contract out, he's one of the best players in the NBA. You have to read the room and realize that he deserves more money, right?
0: Yeah, you would think and they did bring him back for his final season in the NBA and I think paid him a bunch of money to essentially be a mascot and score 5 points per game. Come to find out Scotty did make more in his career than Jordan based on the contracts he got from Houston. He was there for a little bit, he was in Portland for some really good Portland teams. But you know, I remember in the post Jordan, uh, the post Bulls run for Scotty that the number 2 guy for Hakeem Olajuwon or for Rashid Wallace For whatever reason, well, for obvious reasons, I guess, that didn't quite pack the same punch. It didn't feel like the Scotty of old. Um, But you're right. It, it, It was amazing how within 10 minutes you have the sympathy for a guy that still made $130 million that decided to elect to not have a surgery and put his team in a really bad position for the first 35, 40 games of the year, then demands a trade. I remember dinner conversations with my family about will Scotty or will, won't Scotty be on this team? And even at that age, I thought, Harry, well, if he's not on this team, then, you know, I mean, are they going to win it? It was the first seeds of doubt that this Bulls thing was not predetermined, that they maybe might lose and not win the NBA Finals.
1: My favorite line from this, uh, from the Scotty segment in the second episode, and it kind of just got me feeling super sympathetic for him was when he was talking about growing up and he just said, yeah, I was living in a small town. We only had one basketball hoop and it was covered in dirt, but that was okay. Cause my shoes were dirty anyway. <laughs> and I was just watching that thinking, Oh my God, that is the saddest thing I've heard in a long time. But yeah, it, it, was, um, it, it was, it was, you kind of got the feeling that he got the raw end of the stick, but at the same time, I mean, it, You don't want to say there was anything he could have done because he's being a great teammate throughout the first seven years and you're kinda put in a bad situation towards the end where you are injured. He did not handle that correctly. He should have gotten surgery right after uh right after the season, so he could have come come back at the uh at the start of the next year. But, you know, by then you're in a situation where they're not gonna sign you to another big contract and it it's a tough situation to be in. And, I mean, who knows what could have happened if they had all stayed together for maybe a little bit more time. I mean, I, we'll, we'll obviously never know. But he, he certainly – I, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I don't even know what happens. I'm watching this like a movie.
2: I texted two guys at the end of episode two. Well, does he get traded? What happens? Because <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> and, and that's why it's cool to kind of bounce these off you guys because I'll say this. It's sort of like when I watched Apollo 13 when I was younger, and I knew that they were going to make it, but it's so well done that you're like, oh my God, did they make it on their reentry into the atmosphere? And then they finally show up, you're like, yay. Well, in this documentary, episode two ends, and Trevor, I, I won't give you the spoiler, but yeah, I genuinely question whether or not Scotty will get that trade, and will they get Sean Kemp in return from the Sonics? Because that was the big one. The big thing back in the day was trading Scotty for Sean Kemp and thinking, well, that might work. It wouldn't have. As good as Sean Kemp was, that was not the role that the Bulls needed. And I'm looking through old stats of that team. Scotty was essentially the distributor. He was a rebounder. He was the best defender on the team. And he was one of the only guys that shot over 30% from three. Keep in mind, Jordan shot about 24% from three point range that year. The best player on the, best shooter, of course, is Steve Kerr. But I saw this stat and this is mind blowing. Tony Kukoc had the most threes of any guy in that team. And it was like 70 for the year. It was a, and I know it was a different game, but Scotty occasionally he would make that three and that team sorely needed it cuz I there were finals and there were uh, final scores in that playoff run of like 88 to 84 in an NBA game. And it, it, it was just a brutal game sometimes. That offense for the Bulls, as good as that defense was, that offense could really suck. And Dennis Rodman wasn't going to do anything for you offensively. Luke Longley was limited. So you really did need him. And uh, I thought – like uh, Luke shortly. He <laughs> 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 did it. Uh, let's see here. W- oh, go ahead, Trevor. I will, Sorry. I
2: will say, though, quickly, can you imagine if – I'm trying to think of a comp. I mean, Clay Thompson is just a comp because he's the number two on the Warriors, but he's not the (laughs) second best player in the league. Could you imagine, though, if reports Mm -hmm. came out today that Clay Thompson was just sitting on the back of the bus, just cussing out, berating his owner left and right? I mean, he would get absolutely murdered in the media for something like that.
0: Yeah. I wonder if back then there was this sort of unspoken thing, sort of how presidential reporters back in the early 60s knew that John F. Kennedy was having affairs left and right, and they didn't say anything about it. And I wonder if during this run for the Bulls, as powerful as they were, if you're a beat reporter and you want access from the biggest athletes on the planet, you aren't going to be writing about how, oh, yeah, on the bus, Scottie Pippen's calling – Jerry Krause crumbs and making fun of his weight and poking his belly. You know that wouldn't probably go over very well. So I, <laughs> I'm picturing Scotty just going up to him and poking his belly. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the Simpsons, where Homer's telling Marge about how all the all the guys at the plant love him and that they <laughs> rub his bald head and that they poke his belly, and she's like, "That doesn't sound like they like like you at all." <laughs> so we're two episodes in. I'm trying to think of any other notes that I took from this. Uh, they do get into the Bowl Celtics series of 86. Now, I was texting with my dad throughout the documentary last night, and I think that was a big moment for sort of casual fans realizing that this Jordan guy was more than a rookie phenom. The whole story about that second season, immediate adversity, I think it's the third game of the year, he breaks his foot, and then behind the back of the team, again, something that if you did this now, you would get absolutely scorched for it. Behind the team's back, He starts playing five-on-five basketball, rehabbing himself, and then he comes back, and this flips back again to the Jerry Krause, what the hell, dude? They play a game in Indiana, they need the win to make the playoffs, and they keep that time limit of 14 minutes so tight that he can't play the extra 30 seconds to be out there for the last possession of the game. John Paxson gets the game-winning shot, they make the playoffs, and then it was that Bulls-Celtics series where people realize, okay, this kid is probably the best player in the game, not just you know, a good young player, but the best in the game. I I thought that the interviews with Larry Bird and Danny Ainge and those Celtics guys were uh, enlightening because I didn't know what the arrival moment for Jordan was.
2: Well, again, it was kind of like a movie for me. I didn't know either when he scored. What did he score in the first game? 49, 49.
0: 40. Yeah.
2: Okay. So the second game is starting up and when Larry Bird says, and we had no idea what was about to hit us and I'm going, well, I wonder what he scored. I, I truly didn't know any of this. And I think, was it Larry Bird who said that it wasn't Michael Jordan on the court? That was God and Michael Jordan's body.
0: And kudos to Larry Bird. He had said that exact quote right after the game. So he, he remembered that quote and then he brought it back for the documentary, which I'm sure the filmmakers so, appreciated. But
2: Someone tweeted that, so Larry Bird thinks that even God couldn't beat the Celtics in a, in a playoff series.
0: Essentially, that's how good that Celtics team was. And think about oh, this. Oh, they were stacked. And not just stacked, but they were stacked with seven-footers. So you got Bill Walton, Robert Parrish, Kevin McHale, and then you have Larry Bird, Dennis Johnson, Danny Ainge, to round it all out. I think they won the title that year. And you know, the, those interviews, the story with uh, Danny Ainge and Michael Jordan going for golf between games one and two, this brought up something because I know that a lot of current players get sort of maligned for being buddy-buddy with one another. Well, here back in 1986, you got this old guard of NBA players that are playing golf. And I know it was on their off day and everything, and I'm sure they talk trash, but you know, these guys, there was a, there's a fraternal thing that's always existed in the NBA. So I, I do feel like in the modern NBA, it's a little bit unfair when these guys get criticized for being friends with one another, that they don't hate each other's guts. When I'm thinking, well, back in the day, they probably didn't hate each other's guts all that much.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, we just kind of think they do because we look at, you know, there's more, there's more rivalries back in the day back then because you think of the NBA, the big rivalries you think about are, um, are Lakers, Celtics, and then obviously the Bulls and the Pistons. And I wouldn't imagine that they got along too well off the court, but it, it, for the most part, <clears throat> for the most part, a lot of times these guys, I mean, it, it is a fraternity. You are only spending so much time during the season with players on your own team and then maybe during your off day or maybe in uh, on travel days when you do see the other team you can kind of relate to people on the other team and, and it's nice to have someone who's going through similar um similar situations to to you are and uh, obviously nba players are going through the same uh same kind of routine same schedule as other nba players so it really we like to think that it's so much more buddy-buddy these days because it's more visible to us by social media, but I think it's been like that for a long time.
0: Now, I want to flip this back around because I just talked about how some of these guys are – oh, sorry, like my mixer loose. There we go. Uh, I want to turn this back around, though, because the other side of that is how these NBA players um, – I don't want to go old man yells at cloud here, okay? I don't want to turn into that, but for a second I will – Where load management is a common conversation that we have. Kawhi Leonard is very conscientious about it. I'm only going to play X amount of games and make sure that I'm ready for the playoffs. And I get it because winning a championship, that's the most important thing. But I just found that contrasted with Jordan insisting that he come back in a somewhat risky fashion. The 90-10 split that the doctors gave him. Well, 90% you're going to be fine. 10% you break your foot again and you are never the same. Uh, so I just thought that the immediate thought that I had was the load management conversation and that if there is an argument that these old dudes, the Charles Barkley's and the Michael Jordan's of the world have against these younger guys, it's that back in the day, that was not a thing. So I don't know if you guys thought, I mean, this yeah. is probably. Well,
1: the one thing that I would say to that is you got to look at it with a couple of, of things in mind. One, and this one probably does play a big, big role, is that Jordan, like we've said, is the ultimate competitor. Could you see him uh can you see someone that we're going to try to put on a similar uh pedestal uh Kobe Bryant can you see him doing that early on in his career probably not also Jordan was in his second year he was a kid he wasn't someone who had established himself as this um as this greatest player in the league yet he still wanted to get out there as much as he could and go out and play as much as he could also his team was playing for something at that point, it was towards the end of the year, and he was feeling healthy. So there's a lot of things where you draw comparisons between him and, uh, and say, a guy who is vocal about load management, like Kawhi Leonard, who is healthy, but it's early on in the season. He's already established himself as one of the more valuable assets in the NBA, and um, and and just you know, the last thing I think you would put on on um, you know, kind of rounding this all together is that it is a slightly different era in which we play. But I think all those things before that last point kind of, at least for me, make it more obvious that it's not, it's not so crazy. It's not a direct um, comparison because there are, there are different factors between what he was going through and what a guy like Kawhi is going through as far as his load management now. Cause also we talk about, uh, you know, we're talking about that, at least I don't remember any instances where, uh, say a guy like LeBron in his second year was demanding to have his, uh, his time, his, um, his load management games or Kobe or Kawhi or any players that are big time in the NBA now.
2: Do you guys feel like it lessens? I don't know how to put this. In other words, Kawhi learned was still the best player in the league and won a title despite being able to take 30% of the year off, essentially. Do you feel like that sort of lessens Jordan's? Um, how do I put it? You know, he his his claim in that you need to be the best to win, and now you're seeing all these guys win in spite of sometimes just not really caring at all.
1: You know what I mean? Yeah, no, well, I think
0: it, <laughs> Go ahead, Harry. I, I
1: think I think it's a different game now, obviously with all the super teams, but also when he said that, when he said you have to be the best to win and I'm not gonna obviously try to, you know, change what he's saying, but I think what he was saying in I guess I am going to do that. But I guess what he was <laughs> saying was more so not you have to be the best to win, but you have to play as much as you can and be the best you can to be the best player in the world. Like sure. Jordan, didn't, Jordan didn't want to be the best player in the game year in, year out. He wanted to be the greatest player of all time. And that's, that's the mindset he brought with it. And, you know, when you want to do that, you don't take any days off. You do absolutely everything you can. And maybe he's looking at it saying now, guys like Hawaii, they're great players. They're champions. They're going to, I mean, Kawhi is a two-time league or not league MVP, but NBA Finals MVP. But from Jordan's point of view, if you're not going out there and giving it as much as I gave it, you're never going to be as good as I was.
2: Well, I guess what I mean is, let's say hypothetically LeBron plays another, I don't know, ridiculously eight seasons or something, and he only plays half the games in order to manage that. And somehow he wins another six rings, I don't know. And so then suddenly he's indisputably number one. It Doesn't it hurt the credence of Jordan's point? if a guy can be the greatest of all time and then also take half the games off. Yeah,
0: I think I think there's a point to that. Listen, it is an apples and oranges thing where what worked for Jordan, and Harry, you kind of touched on this, Jordan's just a very specific beast. I mean, there was no one else like him. It's that hyper-competitiveness that no one has matched. And really, it's okay if no one ever matches that because his competitiveness almost becomes... Um, There are negatives to the amount of competitiveness that he has, and we're going to see that more and more in this documentary. But, yeah, Trevor, to your point, I mean, and especially this is the way the NBA is now, and LeBron shouldn't have to operate outside of the way that other superstars are operating. He doesn't have anything, in my mind at least, to prove uh, or anything more to prove by saying, you know what, I might be 43, but I'm going to play all 82 games even though that's going to hurt my chances to win a ring. Winning the ring is what matters the most. And I, I think that, especially the older you get, when you look at LeBron, the other factor is that there are three years of extra NBA mileage that he has. The Jordan plays three years in college, you know, 28, 30 games a year. LeBron, so, from age 18, is coming out and not playing 82 games a year, but more like 100, because he's making deep playoff runs every single year. So that that is another situation where it would be hard to say that LeBron at 36 should operate any differently than Jordan would have.
2: Is LeBron number one in minutes played?
0: I would think. I'd have to look it up, but either him or Kareem.
2: Yeah. I don't I don't also matter- found it,
1: go ahead. I wouldn't imagine it would be LeBron just because, like you said, I think it, would, it is probably someone like Kareem who was just around for that long and played for as long as he did. I think probably LeBron's up there simply because he has a couple extra years on him um, – or he has a couple of extra years in the NBA, but I mean, even a guy like Dirk Mavitsky, you might think might be up there, might even be a little bit above LeBron because I think they came. Dirk came in like four or five years before him and just retired playing basically the same amount. So I would put him in probably the top five, but I don't think he's number one quite yet.
0: Let's, Let's see. I, I might do a list session here. We'll do the top five minutes played NBA history. Let's go. He's with this. got a
2: list. Carl Malone's probably on there, too. Harry, was
0: it you that came up with the He's Got a List thing, or was it another? It was an Illini player that told
1: you. Oh, that's way before me.
0: Okay, maybe it was was Rob Bain or something. Okay, I got the top five here. Actually, I got more than that. Rob Bain
2: interned and created that song. No, no, no.
0: No, no no way. (laughs) Jeremy was at a football practice, and some football player said, Hey, you know how you guys do lists all the time? You should do Kisses on My List from... uh, hauling oats and then make it into like a theme song i see okay so all time minutes played i got the top 10
1: by the way never put halls in your oats absolutely disgusting yes
0: (laughs) absolutely noted now i will give you michael jordan he's 28th
1: wow i I mean that doesn't surprise me and
0: guess who's 27th scotty pippen he ah, had there you go. Yep. Finally, poetic finally number two to Pippen's <laughs> number one. Yeah. Scotty had forty-one thousand and sixty-nine nice minutes. Nice. Michael Jordan with forty-one thousand and eleven. So it
2: was funny when they were listing Scotty's stats and they kept, you know, said second and yep. return, second in points. And I'm going, well, yeah, that's that's what a number two
0: is. And the other right thing like the, the other thing you noticed, Trevor, was that they I'm I'm sure it was, you know, totally Uh, A conscious choice by the uh, filmmakers, but that the second episode, number two, focuses on number Ah, two.
2: Yeah, they barely, I mean, they barely even showed him in the first one. They mentioned when they were doing the Paris bit, you know, they mentioned Scotty was not there, but then they never touched on it again in the first episode. And I thought, that's kind of odd. And then it's almost like the second episode is almost a retelling of the first episode from Scotty's perspective, Mm because at the end of the first one, you see uh, when they were having their ring ceremony before the season began jordan's perspective of it and then they start out episode two with the exact same ring ceremony but then they show you scotty's perspective of it and what he said to the crowd so i thought that was that was good storytelling
0: by the way ray clay pa announcer for the old chicago bulls unbelievable pa voice and i don't know about you guys because back in the day we would watch the starting lineups we turn off all the lights in the living room we had this like fisher price flashlight (laughs) And then change colors. So we'd be flashing awesome. and that still gives me goosebumps. So the Alan Parsons project song that starts all the lights are down. They had which back at the time was a very state of the art computer animated bull running through the streets of Chicago and up at the United Center. And when he announces Michael Jordan, I can't imagine the feeling Jordan had. I mean, I don't care who you are or how big your ego is. That had to be just the best feeling in the world to get that sort of adulation coming out of the tunnel like that or coming out of the starting line of puddle. Uh, I get goosebumps watching it. And yeah. uh, Let's see here. Top 10 minutes played. Okay. Can you Kareem. guess number one? Kareem's number one. Can you guess number let's, two? Let,
1: let's just let's just do the top five because I don't think I'd be able to get... Well, actually, no. Who cares? If I well, guess someone in there in the top 10, let but me know.
0: Harry Dirk is in the top 10. He's number three.
1: Number wow. three. Uh, number three. I'm going to go... I'm going to go with what uh, with what Trevor said, and I'm going to say Carl Malone.
0: Carl Malone is number two. Well done, Harry. So we have our top three: Kareem, Carl Malone, Dirk. Okay, number okay, four. LeBron. Uh, LeBron's number eight, but okay. he he's continuing okay. to climb, and when all said and done, maybe he will be at the top there. A uh, number four how about, is how someone. About, um, Vince Carter. Vince Carter, number fifteen. It's a good guess, though.
2: I'm trying to think of other players who bypassed college. Kobe?
0: Kobe's number seven. Okay. Yep. Kevin Garnett? Then number four. Okay. Number five is a very good point guard from the late 90s, early 2000s, who we sometimes forget about.
2: Oh, Jason Kidd?
0: Jason Kidd, number five. Number six, you got to go back to Elvin Hayes. Uh, Number nine and ten, you guys will know. Number nine is a center.
1: Shaq?
0: No, he's down in the 20s, actually.
1: Wow, okay. a center, um, How about Tim Duncan?
0: He's number 12.
1: Okay. Good guess.
0: All-timer. Oh, Wilt. Wilt, number nine. Number 10, point guard, who was a teammate of someone else in the top 10. John Stockton. You got it. John Stockton, that's your top 10. Reggie uh, Miller's at 11, just outside.
2: I would not have guessed that Jason Kidd and Kevin Garnett were in the top five.
0: Yeah, Jason Kidd is one of those guys that probably didn't help. He played for the Nets and the Mavs, That's just because you know they aren't—they are not franchises that typically get a lot of pub. But he had a long career.
2: Hey guys, you don't forget at- that Brad Underwood thinks Mark Smith is the next Jason
1: Kidd. <laughs> there you
0: go. Hey, well, I thought he was the next D. Brown, so me and him are in the same boat.
1: <laughs> you ever Touche. think about? You ever think about players? The ones that always come to my mind, and it's—I guess it's really <laughs> funny that they played for the same team, but. Jason Kidd played for the Mavs before the Nets and after the Nets. I think he actually played for the Nets more than he played, or no, for the Mavs more than he played for the Nets. But you never think about that. And the other one is, um, you know, uh, Steve Nash. Steve Nash played for the for the Mavericks before he played for the Suns, and it wasn't until he went to the Suns that he became this like superstar. But he was still a great player with the Mavericks. There's it's it's weird. There's these players where you, you almost tell yourself. Wow, I forgot they were on this team. Absolutely. Tracy Tracy McGrady played for the Raptors. Joe Johnson played for the Celtics.
0: I did not remember that about Joe Johnson.
1: Yeah, he started with the Celtics. That
0: is a name that is underappreciated almost, Joe Johnson. He had a really good NBA career, but that's the the thing, though. Joe Johnson? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. But that's the thing though, is that if I think about the NBA post Jordan and this is where I know I'm not alone in this. When that all ended in 98, you had the strike that didn't help the bulls. When they did get back from the strike, I think they went 13 and 39 or something like that. They were, they were terrible. Tim Floyd finally got his bulls coaching job, which that was another thing as we kind of wrap things up. For that was one. weird. Yeah. Jerry Krause's daughter, I think had a wedding. He invites all the players, all the assistant coaches, he invites Tim Floyd, but no Phil. <laughs> and then he ends up bringing Tim Floyd to games. I thought, or practices, and they're like, "Why?" I
2: mean, that's borderline like mental warfare against Phil. And Phil's bring thinking this guy and waiting to the game.
0: And and Tim Floyd, from the minute he stepped in Chicago, and maybe they'll give context to this, but maybe not because it was the year after. You know, everyone knew it wasn't going to work. Just the the roster stunk. Tony Kukoc was the leading scorer. I checked this the ninety eight ninety nine Bulls team. <laughs> I think it was Tony Kukoc and Bill Wennington were the lone hol- holdovers. Tony Kukoc led the team in scoring with eighteen points a game. Brent Barry was the second leading scorer. And I'm thinking, if you were a Bulls season ticket holder, you had to have known, right? And you pre- would you have just cashed out at that point and just said, oh, okay, I had a good run, and that's yeah. It.
1: How how many times do you think like? Ku coach or Wennington or, or someone in that locker room the next year would be like, all right, guys, we're still the defending champs until someone <laughs> knocks
0: us off. Oh my god! I mean, I need to pull up this roster and just see how many. I, we'll play a game. How many? If you recognize the name, that that'll be the game. If you guys even oh god, recognize I'm going all the name, for 12. okay. But no, we, you know, Ku coach, you know, coach, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll just go down uh, alphabetically. Okay. Okay. All right. Brent Barry, I mentioned him. He was in a yeah. dunk competition one year. Yeah, I think he
1: played for the he played for the Spurs, right?
0: Yeah, maybe the Clippers at one point too. Okay, Corey Benjamin. Nope. Mario Bennett. Heard Keith of him. Keith Booth.
1: Nope. Ron,
0: Randy Brown. Now he was on the ninety-seven, ninety-eight team. Mark, uh, I do not know that name either, though. <laughs> he was a backup point guard. Uh, let's see here, Mark Bryant. Nope. Corey these Carr. These plain names. I know. Corey Carr. No. Da- nope. David Cornell. He's got these weird accents above his name for some reason. Uh, Ron Harper. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Charles Jones. Another boring name. Tony Kukoc. Andrew Lang. Here's my favorite, though. Sounds like a fake name. Rusty LaRue. <laughs> huh? And then he got Dickie Simpkins and Bill Wennington, who were both on the 97, 98 team. So you came back. I remember there's a great joke from Norm McDonald on a weekend update, and it was after all the Bulls had left, and he's like, well, the Bulls dynasty appears to be over, but no worries, Bulls fans. As long as Steve Kerr averages 63 points a game, you'll be able to defend your title with a four-peat or something like that. <laughs> and it was for me, as a young fan, that was it. I kind of tuned out until the baby Bulls of, you know, Oh four, oh five, the Kirk Heinrich and the Chris Duhan teams that made a couple playoffs. But that the NBA at that point went into this weird period of transition where you did have Kobe and Shaq, that they got things going for the Lakers, but the Allen Iversons of the world, people began to, similar to the eighties, say, well, it's just a cocaine uh, bunch of thugs, which you know, there's a lot of um Unsavory racial undertones with something like that. But it seemed like in the late 90s, early 2000s, people started to turn on the NBA because, well, there's too many tattoos and, oh, these guys, they play street ball. And it's like, well, I don't know, man. Allen Iverson was a lot of fun to watch. And those Lakers teams were a lot of fun to watch. And the Spurs had some really damn good teams back then, too.
1: Yeah. I mean, Personally, I, I, I find I, that more marketable than not. But go ahead. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, you talk about Allen Iverson. They did an entire thirty for thirty on him. He was maybe one of the most influential players in the NBA because he was one of the first ones that really brought that that uh, street ball style of play to the NBA. Where it was him and uh, and Tracy McGrady, uh, J- Jason Williams, uh, what was White he? White chocolate, Coke chocolate. I think Played yeah. The so th- these guys that just kind of brought this uh, this new flavor of of playing to the NBA that I mean, I definitely appeal to a younger generation and you get to a point where that might've even trickled into where we are now, where the most popular sport among, uh, among the younger generations isn't necessarily going to be uh baseball or the NFL. I mean, the NFL is still the biggest sport in America, but when you talk to a lot of kids around say um, Andrew's age, Andrew Tay, What did they love? They loved the NBA, and you can probably say that may have started back with um, back with the early 2000s with guys bringing that streetball style of play to the NBA. The sixth graders,
0: it's the NBA, and it's not even so much they have a favorite team. It's always conversations about well, LeBron or Kevin Durant or Steph Curry, or you know they get in these conversations about all the stars of which there are many. Uh, To wrap a bow on this, you mentioned we mentioned Allen Iverson. And Harry, the 30 for 30, which was a really good 30 for 30. I mean, they all are pretty damn good, but that was one of the, that was one that kind of gets forgotten about. And the producer of The Last Dance, as he was approaching Jordan, he had an outline written for an eight episode documentary series. He had a personal note just saying how meaningful it would be to make this thing. And he had his credits on it. And one of them was the Allen Iverson 30 for 30. So Jordan's going through the list of this guy's achievements and he's like, hmm you did the Allen Iverson 30 for 30 and the producer, he's like, Oh no, is that bad? And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, that was one of mine. And Jordan's like, I love that little guy. And he's like, all right, cool. Let's do it. And it was, he, he thinks the producer that that Allen Iverson 30 for 30 was part of what pushed Jordan to think, Oh, well this guy, yeah, he, he makes good stuff. So let's go ahead and do this. And then here we are three and a half years later from the start of when they did this in the aftermath of the Cavs winning the NBA finals where I think Jordan was probably thinking about his legacy more than ever before.
2: Yeah, I find that interesting that he chose mm-hmm. at that moment to decide to do it. All
0: right, boys. Well, that is episode. Uh, well, episodes. What are they? Parts or episodes? How did they frame that yesterday? Episode one, episode two.
1: I think it was. Uh, I think it was episode. Yeah.
0: And no subtitles or anything. They just say one, two. So we got three and four next week. Three is going to be about Dennis Rodman. Not sure what four is going to be about. They had a sneak peek about the Robin thing that's all over Twitter. They had it on SportsCenter last night. So we'll get into this each Monday as these episodes air. I got to admit, in the absence of live sports, I'm, I am I would have been excited about this documentary series anyways, but that's only heightened because we don't have live sports to latch on to. So it felt like last night there was a big game that's tipped off at 8, 8 p.m., and when it started, I was glued to the couch and totally into it.
1: I think that Rodman is as deep on the roster as I want to go as far as getting an entire episode dedicated to themselves. I don't need to see episode seven about the life and tribulations of Ron Harper or Tony (laughs) Kukoc. I just don't care that much.
0: Tony Kukoc's upbringing in Croatia. That doesn't interest you?
1: (laughs) Do they even have film of that?
0: I don't don't know.
1: Even those stock-like little videos of them like showing a video – of a uh, of some abandoned basketball court in uh, the frozen tundra of Croatia. Do they have one of those. <laughs> That's a
2: whole separate 10-hour documentary.
0: <laughs> I just imagine this sort of rags to riches stories so Scotty Pippen similarly he he grows up in a dirt poor town in Arkansas with the Dirty Hoop and he's got holes in his shoes and you know this sort of like little Charles Dickens story and then you got Tony Kukoc in the frozen tundra of Croatia having to wear ice skates on his family's bas- ice-covered basketball court and uh, it just seems like some of these stories the Pippen one in particular is such a you got to be kidding me team manager grows 5 inches. these are like tall tales that you, it do- uh, uh, uh tall, up. grows 5 <laughs> up <Yeah>, that's all <laughs> or, <Jordan>, <laughs> or jordan the whole thing about you know well he didn't make the varsity team his sophomore year and of course in hindsight we say how but then they actually talked. It, just all these things that I remember growing up, uh, especially about Jordan, and it just adds to the legend. So it is good to get a more humanistic side and to this story and add all the context to it. And but at the end of the day, as human as these guys are, you know, Jordan, Pippen, these guys are still badass athletes. So it's like they can humanize them all they want. But I think that ultimately, this thing is only going to grow the legend.
1: Yeah, I mean this. I, th- we're talking about, or at least Jordan was talking about how he's worried that this documentary is going to make people not like Yeah, him. right. Um, I mean, the first thing I'm thinking is, well, that's probably going to start to stem from his competitiveness. And you saw a little bit of a sneak preview of that with him, you know, yelling at guys, telling them they need to get their, you know, what together and how that one guy was saying, Hey, can I get a hug after they won some who cares game over in Paris? And he's just going, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. And I mean, at least if, that, if that's what he's worried about for people not liking him, then I don't think he has anything to worry about because he's basically just showing how he is a competitor and how he's going to do anything and absolutely everything he needs to win as much as he can.
0: Yeah, people like that. I don't think people are going to hold it against him.
1: Who
2: would be the least interesting player to profile for a 10-hour documentary?
0: I mean, Rusty LaRue was also on the 97-98 <laughs> game, so you could go with like Rusty LaRue. Like we're talking
2: LaRue. like maybe five minutes of content that you have to stretch <laughs> into 10 hours.
0: They will get uh, the Scott Burrell thing, but that's going to be interesting because of how mean Jordan was. Because Burrell was the new guy on the team, and he did that with any first-year player for the Bulls. Uh Let's see. I, I mean, Bill Wennington, nice guy. He got a few interview segments there. Okay. Dickie Simpkins, I remember even at a young age being like, God, whenever he was on the court, I thought, what does he do? He's just a six-foot-nine guy who gets... There like,
2: it is. Dickie, Simp- Dickie Simpkins, a 10-hour documentary. <laughs> what does he do?
0: <laughs> Why are you out there? They have an all-star-studded cast, including you know Bill Clinton. He's like, I, I don't remember him. And then Barack Obama, Barack
2: Obama, former Dickie Simpkins
0: fan. But Barack Obama is so diplomatic; he'd probably say something like, "Well, well, uh, uh, Dicky Simpkins, he uh, was. a... I can't do a Barack Obama impression. <laughs> a, a valuable contributor to the uh, to the Warm championship." Let me be chocolate. clear. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that wasn't bad. That, that was, was bad, pretty good. Man.
0: That was a hell of a lot better than mine. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, there were. That's the thing about good teams. I mean, you can go back to the 0405 '05 Illini a Nick Smith documentary. Even though that would be kind of interesting cuz he looked so freaking miserable that year, but every good team have... has these also ran nothing guys at the end of the bench.
1: Do you have players on your on uh, not just basketball teams, but players that you have held had on your um on your favorite teams in any sport that every time they are out there, every time without fail, you're just thinking what nothing personal, but why are you still on this team? The Eagles had these running backs back in the day. They had this one running back, Eldra Buckley. They only gave him the ball. He was this tiny little guy with these long dreads. They only gave him the ball when they were on the one-yard line. And it's not like they only gave it to him down there and he always scored. He never scored. <laughs> but it was second and goal like 10 times. <clears throat> 10 times during this one season where they handed him the ball on the goal line. And he scored, I think, one time. And it just every time he's out there, I'm just thinking, oh my god. That Sounds
0: like Aaron
2: Bailey. Ever...
0: Ooh. Yeah,
1: but at least Aaron Bailey produced sometimes. This guy never did anything.
0: How I got one. I got one. And no offense to him. There are far worse players. Bill Cole. He just, <laughs> I he started I forgot about Bill Cole. He started an entire yeah. season and I remember thinking this is symptomatic of Bruce Weber and just this inability. Meanwhile, Purdue kicking ass. They got Robbie Hummel, Jawan Johnson, Lewis Jackson, Etuan Moore, all guys that you probably could have gotten, and instead we got Bill Cole. And it's not his fault. I mean, Mike Tisdale, he was pretty good. I had no issues with Mike Tisdale, but yeah, Bill, was, Cole Bill Cole was, just, was like
2: a bad combination of Tyler Griffey and Mike Tisdale.
0: Yeah, and he started every damn game. And I i bet if we look at his stats, Trevor, he probably averaged like eight points, and he was okay, but that's the problem. Is after oh four oh five, everything was just okay. And so you know that's that that is a yeah. name that I think John Eke to a similar extent. But you know, grad transfer. What can you really expect from him? Right. Poor Bill
2: Cole. Maybe except for missed dunks.
0: <laughs> oh my God! So many missed dunks. And that was it, Harry. I think you mentioned like what's that thought I've had that many times watching sports with one guy where I think what's the point. What is the damn point? I mean, the, the Bears continue to give carries to, I forget what backup running back um, the last couple of years, and Trevor, maybe you remember. I mean, you, you got, two years ago, you got Jordan Howard, and you got Tariq Cohen, and then there's the third running back that they would throw out there, about six carries a game, and nothing ever happened. Nothing. What was his name? See, that's... that per- wasn't the
1: kid from MSU, Langford was it? No,
0: no, he was, he was okay, but <laughs> that was before that, but there was some kid that was kind of a scat back um, and didn't do
2: anything. Uh, I can't think of his name. Didn't he go to Georgia?
0: Maybe, and I'd look it up, but what's the point? I don't know. All right, well, hey, uh, for DP Doe, online at dpdo.com Harry, if you could put f- four toppings into a calzone, what four toppings are you going for? To- hmm.
1: Are we, are we starting with cheese? Well, the cheese, cheese,
0: other than cheese. We got the cheese in there, and you got, of course, your dipping sauce in a cup.
1: Oh, there you go. If I could go with any four things accoutrement to my calzone, I'd probably go with some—you hmm, know what? Let's let's go pepperoni. Um, I know that's lame, but I can't—I mean, I, it's, it's awesome. I'll go pepperoni. Let's go some jalapenos. Ooh. Let's go maybe, maybe a little bit of, uh, a little bit of ground beef. And, um, let's see. I'm, 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 apparently going really, really kind of spicy Italian this way. Uh, if I'm doing those three, then let's finish it off with some, uh, Finish it off with some mushrooms.
0: Okay. Good to get some vegetables in there. Huh. What, would you put, what would you put in your calzone, Trevor? Because I would probably just go I was going go...
2: like the chicken route, like chicken, yeah. bacon, onion, and some hot sauce.
0: Well, whatever hey, you hey, choose. No, hey, hey, hey,
1: hey. I'm taking hot sauce. That's not a topping.
0: Oh. That's not no. a topping. Okay. Well, yeah. anywho. <laughs> Whatever you want in your calzone, dpdo.com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4 com. Coupon code 200-LEVEL. That's the 200-LEVEL or 200-LEVEL. Gets you 10% off your order at 4 com. And then, of course, there is Trevor's favorite domain name.
2: BrianIsMyGuy.com.
0: For all your insurance needs, life, auto, home, renters, business, you name it. And these are all champagne urbana products, so they have your local interest at heart. BrianIsMyGuy.com. Okay. Guys, appreciate it. We'll get back together next Monday for episodes three and four. Episode three. Certain to be entertaining with a lot of Dennis Robin episode four, whatever that's about. But so far, so good, and it at least gives me something on Sunday nights that I can look forward to in the absence of sports.
2: Well, we've got also, the NFL draft this week too.
0: Oh God, that's just right. I was going
1: to say that. Yep.
0: When is that Thursday? Thursday. Okay, rounds one and two Thursday, and then the rest on Friday.
1: I think it's just one. Okay. Isn't it just one? though that think might be different. I don't know. I know in the past it has been. Rounds one, and then rounds two and three of the second day, and then I think okay. uh, four through seven. But it might be different with this whole... Um, so Friday would be the Bears' day. Talk, uh, yeah, no
0: first-round pick.
2: Because mm-hmm. I think they got two in the second, one in the third, right?
0: Maybe they'll go for another like tight that. end.
2: Yeah, that'd be great. Just God. what they need.
0: Ugh. All right, well, uh, yeah, NFL draft. That's snuck up, but I guess it is mid-April. Okay, did, so
2: Did you see they released, was it Trey Burton? And they said... <laughs> yep. uh, yeah. They said Bears release veteran proven tight end Trey Burton, and I'm like,
1: eh,
2: I don't know about the veteran and proven.
0: Yeah, proven my ass. He did have the first year with the Bears was decent until he got hurt for something stupid, and then well, what was
2: <sighs> he got? He got hurt for something stupid, and then Zach Miller almost had his leg amputated. Oh. It just all went downhill from
0: there. Yeah, well, I think that was the year before it was Zach Miller, and if you would have had Zach Miller on that Bears team two years ago, healthy, ugh, I mean, he he was a good about tight end.
1: Not trading away Greg Olson.
0: Yeah, well, there's that. There's that.
1: Well, I mean, that one's always a double-edged sword with me, and I hate that term because a double-edged sword is just a sword. But with with Greg <laughs> Olson, with Greg Olson, if you don't trade him away, you never get Brandon Marshall. So,
2: yeah, where yeah. would we be without Brandon Marshall?
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Hey, here's a name from the past: Devin Aroma should do. He wasn't I bad. About him. And then there was Johnny Knox, oh who literally Johnny got Knox. Yeah. His back broken. I, that was the most brutal NFL thing I've seen. I mean, the Zach Miller thing, when he found out what happened to his leg and how damn near needed to be amputated. But Johnny Knox got... There's a movie called Not Another Teen Movie. Have you seen that before? Yeah, and
1: you got, I know the scene you're talking about. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and the, the special needs kid is in the end zone. He catches the touchdown. And these two guys from opposite directions tackle him and just decapitate him from his abdomen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that movie is great it's pretty good um, it is i I love the naked gun type parody movies so and i know that's more like scary movie things but yeah not another team movie is pretty good Uh, julius
2: peppers
0: yeah yeah chris conti oh well (laughs) there you know what that's it let's end on that that's the guy trevor that no matter what he did he was a really why is he why is he on the field what walking he liability. A walking liability. Who somehow lasted another four or five years in the league, uh, down in Tampa, when Lovey was there too.
1: I, w- I will say he did have one of the most beautiful interceptions I've ever seen. No, nope, okay. no, nope, don't care. <laughs> against San Francisco, <laughs> it was pretty I don't cool. Care what you, I mean, yeah. that was yeah, full extension. All
0: right, boys. We'll see you next Monday.
1: Sounds good. All right, I wish take he care.
0: Would have
2: fully extended against Aaron Rodgers. All, All right, right. Yeah. that's
0: it. See you forever. Ah. See you, Harry. All right. Yeah. So always good catching up with Trevor and Harry here. Episode 80, 80 of the 200 level, which is crazy to think. And we'll be here back every Monday with these last dance recaps coming up on Thursday. Got an interview with Casey Boguslaw talking about baseball. Will we have it? What will it look like? And really just uh, exciting to talk with Casey, who is always one of the better interviews that we'd have on 93.5. And you talk about someone that knows his stuff. That would be Casey. So we will be back on Thursday with Maybe some Illini news. I mean, we're kind of waiting for Adam Miller. Could be anything. College sports are going to have to figure out what they're going to do coming up, and uh, Casey Boguslaw as well. Until then, we will see you next time. It is the 200th level.